Radio Mano Papachango. Chris, this is Derek of an expat that's been living and working in Shanghai for the past eight years. And I've actually been an expat in China for close to 14 now, which is almost half my life. That's pretty crazy. I didn't realize that until just now. Uh, I heard Sherry, who is also living in Shanghai, send a message and I just wanted to say there's also someone else here that's listening to you. And I have been for almost a year now. And it's just really refreshing to hear an honest conversation with anybody and everybody that's willing to have that conversation. Everybody's got a story to tell and it's good to hear them all. What's up, Chris, and all the tangentialites out there? Hello, hello. My name is Ryan, coming at you live from deep in the Sequoias. I'm backpacking through Rayleigh Sloop, which is a very, 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 very cool little scenic walk through, taking some days to check out. But um, yeah, having a good old time, meeting cool people. Took some shrooms earlier in the day, and it took me for a wild ride, to say the least. Made me miss my mama, that's for sure. So. <laughs> I'm heading out a day early and uh, gonna go call her, get some phone reception, give her a call until I love her. And I recommend you all should do the same if you can to call your mamas. They do a lot for us out there. Alright, much love guys. Peace out. Hey Chris, it's your number one fanboy here. You ever think about how nervous people get recording and sending these to you? You're just so intellectually good looking, it makes me nervous. But I'm currently leaving the matrix of Dallas and driving to Crestone, Colorado to trim some hemp and work on a farm up there for a little bit. But anyways, I love what you're doing. Love your show. I've listened to it for years. I bought your shirts. I bought your stickers. bought your books. And love what you're doing. I love uh, what you stand for and how you go about expressing that. So keep up the good work. Much love to you. So I'm intellectually good looking, huh? I guess I'll take it if that's all I got, if that's all you're offering. Uh, thank you, everybody, for sending these things in. You can send them to intro at tangentiallyspeaking.com. Uh, and don't get nervous. Don't worry about it. It's just, uh, you know, that first guy was just walking down the street in Shanghai. Second guy was tripping his face off in the Sierras. Third dude's in the car driving up to Crestone, where I happen to be right now. So... You don't need to get fancy about it. It's uh, it's all about the sincerity. You don't have to be anywhere exotic. Uh, you don't have to be doing something bizarre. You don't have to be optimizing your life. You can just be whoever the fuck you are. Because that's good enough for me and that's good enough for us. This is a podcast for fucking weirdos like you, like me, like those three guys and everybody else who sends in uh, intros. So you're part of the club. Congratulations, for better or worse, or condolences, <laughs> whatever works for you. So this is Aroma. This is a weird um, sort of patched together episode. I recorded um, about half of it sitting in a car up in uh, Wild Horse Plains, Montana, a few weeks ago. Um, and then I never got around to finishing it until now. And so... What you're going to hear is something that I recorded, as I said, about a month ago. Uh, it's relevant because it's responding to an email that somebody sent. Um, and these things are evergreen. They're not uh, timely. It's not about whatever just happened last week. So I'm going to play that. And uh, then I'll play some music and I'll come back. Um, I think actually I'll play you some music before I get before I do play that. What was I looking at? Ah, yes. I'm going to play you a tune that was popular when I was a kid. Uh, it's by a band named Three Dog Night, which most of you probably have never heard of. 
they were pretty big in the 70s. Uh, actually, the first album I ever bought was a Three Dog Night album. I think it was Greatest Hits. And uh, there's this tune called I Never Been to Spain. And it was my favorite song when I was whatever I was, 12 maybe, something like that. And uh, I used to listen to it all the time. And sort of the song isn't really about Spain. Uh, it does say something about Spanish women, which ironically became important to me as I grew older. Um, but this song and then there's another song, a beautiful song, which I'll play uh, later. Yeah, why don't I play that for you? It's called uh, Daniel by Elton John. And that also has a reference to Spain. And those two songs... Um, came out roughly the same time. I think uh, Daniel's probably a few years later, but it was early in Elton John's career. <clears throat> I think it's about a blind, I think it's his blind brother is the uh, Bernie Taupin's lyrics. Anyway, these two songs make references to Spain and had a special place in my young heart when I was a kid. And uh, I won't say that they had any role in me ending up living in Spain for so long, but... They certainly sort of um, planted a seed, let's say. So this is uh, Never Been to Spain by Three Dog Night. After that, you'll hear the segment that I recorded in Montana. <clears throat> and then I'll play Daniel by Elton John with another Spain reference. And then I'll be back with you in real time. I'm in Crestone, Colorado, by the way. I don't know if I mentioned that, but... I thought that would be, uh, that's why I played that last snip of the guy on his way to Crestone. Just arrived yesterday. All right. Be back soon. Well, I never been to Spain. But I kind of like the music. See, the ladies are insane there. And they sure know how to use it. Don't abuse it, never gonna lose it. I can't refuse it. Mm -hmm. Well, I never been to England, but I kinda like the Beatles. Well, I hit it for Lost Vegas, only made it out to needles. So good. Whoa. 
Why, hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm coming to you from Wild Horse Plains, Montana, also known as Plains, Montana. I'm sitting in a parking lot of the public library under a shade tree in a car that is not my car. Uh, one thing leads to another, and this is where I find myself waiting for a friend. So I thought, what a great opportunity, since I have this recording gear with me, to do that Roma that I've been promising for so long and never seem to get around to. So here I am, and this is the Roma that I have been promising for, lo, these last few months. So I went to Idaho to visit... Uh, a dude named, well, who we're going to call Daniel, um, because he doesn't really want his real name out there in the world, uh, recorded a podcast with him. Really interesting guy, beautiful family, um, three sons living up in the mountains in Idaho, off the grid with his wife and the three kids, and uh, just a beautiful situation. People are working hard trying to make it work. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to releasing that conversation with Daniel. He was a Marine for seven or eight years, um, was in the shit in Iraq, as they say, and then uh, worked on a SWAT team when he came back. Um, And we talked about a lot about war and following orders and the sort of liberation that one feels when um, choices get reduced down to very basic um, options. And yeah, I, I don't feel that I did the best job with that podcast because I didn't um, push him into areas that I sensed he didn't want to go, and yet that would have been very interesting. Like, for example, dealing with PTSD and some of the challenges around that. I mean, we brushed through it, but I felt his discomfort, and by the time we recorded the podcast, I'd been hanging with him for a couple of days and consider him a friend. And so my sort of I don't know. I'm not a journalist, you know. I'm not. I'm not going to go for the story um, when I feel that it's making someone uncomfortable. So, I guess that's the trade-off, you know. Sometimes the the connection, the personal connection that I develop with folks who come on the podcast, allows them to open up and share more than they would otherwise, and sometimes it. It has the opposite effect, maybe, of keeping me from um, pushing into areas that might make for a better podcast, but would also potentially make somebody uncomfortable. So anyway, I I feel like I didn't. And also there were things that we talked about later and I was like, fuck, why didn't I mention that? Why didn't I like, you know, we've read so many of the same books. Um, he's a really smart guy. He's very widely read. Um, he also, when he was uh, a Marine, like this is like the most badass dude you can imagine, right? He's SWAT team specialist, Marine, hard, tough, physically super strong guy. He was a vegan, I think, vegetarian at least. Probably, I think he said a vegan when he was a Marine. Now, how many Marines are vegans for fuck's sake? Anyway, I forgot to bring that up as well. But this is not an introduction to that. I'm just saying that's one I recorded a couple days ago. Tomorrow, I'm going to be recording with a guy named Jeff Shapiro, who's um like a high-intensity peak jumper, wingsuit flyer. He does all this wild, death-defying shit. Um He's sponsored by a bunch of companies, uh, Kavu and uh, I forget the others, um, uh, Keen and a bunch of other sort of outdoor companies. He's he's the real deal. He's in Missoula. So going to Missoula tomorrow, going to have him on the podcast. And I'm really looking forward to that. But again, that's one of those things where like, am I going to ask him the hard questions about, you know, dude, your chances of being dead in five years are, you know, 
very high? Like, or am I going to just sort of let him go where he wants to go with it? Uh, it's, it's tough. It's tough. Anyway, um, so here I am. I was listening to Ray Charles last night. I'm camping by this river, the Clark Fork River. Beautiful. Sitting by the fire listening to Ray Charles. And I was thinking how amazing it must be to be blind and a musician like Ray Charles or Stevie Wonder. Like, to, I just imagine that they experience music so much more comprehensively than I do, uh, than sighted people do, because here we are distracted, you know, probably 80% of our sensory input comes from our eyes. And we know that the brain of a blind person is every bit as active as anyone else's brain. And they're taking the other input and, and sort of processing it more completely. And, and their uh, sense of hearing is more refined and acute. And so they experience something sonically on a much deeper level than most of us do. And so I'm projecting into that and imagining like, wow, you know, the emotional content must also be accentuated and and so to be a blind person and listen to you know a beethoven uh sonata or a piece of music with a lot of complexity and depth um must just be incredible must must be must happen on a much deeper level than it does for me and then <clears throat> and then i had the opposite thought thinking like wow it must really suck to be blind and have no musical talent like, that must be so... I hope I'm not coming across like I'm making fun of blind people here. I'm not. It's just the concept of like, you know, wow, look at me. I'm blind and I still suck at music. Like, geez, that must be bad. Anyway, that that was my thought last night. Here's another thought. I sort of... I'm not shaving very much because I'm on the road and who gives a shit? And I noticed like there's a patch on my face... I think used to have whiskers and now it's like totally smooth and that but I'm not sure because I never really grew a beard in my life I've never I've I've gone from you know shaving every couple of days if I had a job sort of situation to shaving once a week is sort of like has been my rhythm just till it starts getting itchy and then I shave um to now uh, where I'm, I'm sort of more scraggly than I have been in a while. And so are there bald spots? Do people go bald? Do men go bald on their faces? Is that possible? Or do I have mange or something? Or was there was that just always a blank spot and I never noticed it before? I, I don't know. I, my medical expertise does not. But I, I feel like there are a lot of bald guys with beards. Right. So I don't think you go bald beard. I mean, beard bald. Do you? I don't know. Maybe somebody can. Somebody who's a beard, an expert on beard baldness can tell me about that. Um, okay, so here's an email from Philip. Um, da, 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 I'm a fan. I was wondering if you have an opinion on the nature of intoxicating love as it's often described. When I think of intoxicating love, I think of two things. I think of people in their 20s and people who want children. The cynical part of me would point out that those two circumstances typically happen at the same time. I'd love to hear your perspective on intoxicating love and if you feel it can occur between people who don't want to have children. Uh, intoxicating is an interesting word, isn't it? Because it includes the word toxic and uh yet we use the word often i would say in the case of intoxicating love certainly we use the word to describe something that transports us 
in a beneficial way. But I kind of feel like, and, and man, talk about cynical. I I feel like that kind of love is always toxic. How can I say that? Like alcohol is toxic. A little alcohol can give you a rush, but a little more, um, you start to get into liver damage. I feel like love is like that. The kind of love we're talking about here, this swept away, you're everything to me, I'm nothing without you, that kind of love. The kind of love of the movies and songs and all that popular culture, Valentine's Day love. It requires a negation of self that is not a good idea, I think. I think it's never a good idea to locate the source of your happiness in another person. Um, because people change, um, people may not be who you think they are. Uh, I'm not advocating never trusting anyone or never loving anyone. On the contrary, what I would advocate is focus on loving And allowing yourself to be loved. And as early in life as you can, forget about falling in love. And I think maybe that's what Philip means when he talks about intoxicating love. This drunk feeling um, that nothing else matters and and I can't concentrate on anything else. That's an illusion. Uh, or it's based on an illusion. It's a feeling that's triggered by the illusion that that other person is going to solve all your problems. That that if you can only get that other person into your life, then everything's going to be fantastic forever. And that's not true. Because even if you manage to get that other person in your life, If you do so with this belief that their participation in your life is going to solve all your problems, first thing that's going to happen is you're going to notice that you still have your problems. So then there's disappointment. Like, oh, is this person not everything I thought he or she was? Is this person, um, you know, was that... Uh, a lie was was I deceived and you can be disappointed in yourself am I an idiot what happened why did I you know why isn't this working out the way I thought it would um, all of those are are inaccurate feelings and maybe you are an idiot and maybe they did deceive you but that that's not why all your problems didn't disappear the minute that you got them into you uh, it's because that's not how problems disappear. <laughs> they don't disappear because you got a hot woman in your life or a hot dude in your life. That's not what solves problems. <coughs> so that's a problem. Now, even if you go through a period of this intoxication where you think, oh my God, okay, I still have problems, but I don't care anymore because holy cow, look who I get to wake up next to. Great, good for you, but now you're going to worry about losing them because they are the source of your happiness. So, you know, she goes to work and you're worried about that guy who sits next to her or who invited her to lunch or, you know, you're worried about some chick on the subway who's going to, you know, try to steal this dude from you. So now you got another problem. You got all the problems you had before. Now you got another problem as well. Because you have, you know, it's like you're running an extension cord. You've got no power in your house. So you run your extension cord out to your neighbor's house 
which is great, you know, thanks, neighbor, for giving me power, but if neighbor unplugs your cord, you're sitting in the dark. Better to have your own electricity, you know, if possible. Much better to have your own source of light in your life that nobody can unplug. That's the key. And when you have that, then you can start turning your attention to loving not being in love, but loving. And loving, to me, is sort of the opposite of being in love. Being in love is all about me, me, me. You're the center of the universe, and you need, I need you. I need you to love me. Baby, I need your loving. Got to have all your loving. You can't give any to anyone else. It's got to be all about me all the time. That's being in love. It's an infantile state. It's mommy, mommy, look at me. Mommy, 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 mommy. That's being in love. Loving, in as much as being in love is based upon an assumption of scarcity, loving is based upon an assumption of plentitude. Which really, I'm telling you, at 57 years of age, is a much more accurate understanding of the universe as I know it. When I was young, when I was in my 20s, and I had a tendency to fall in love, I had a tendency to be very needy and to locate that you know, to, to believe or imagine that my happiness was going to come from outside me. I thought love was like finding a gold nugget along a, you know, a stream. It was, man, if you find one, hold on to it forever because you might never find another. Many people go through life. They never find the one. They never find anyone. Oh my God, it's such a lonely, cruel world out there. The reason it was lonely and cruel to me at that point is because I was so fucking needy. Because women who got near me Many of them, even the ones who liked me, some of them were like, dude, you're too much. You got to calm the fuck down. I can remember women saying that to me, like, I really like you, but you're too intense, man. And I remember thinking, like, too intense? What are you talking about? Life is intense. Life is all about passion and you know, pursuing experience in the deepest possible ways and blah, 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 blah. If I just dialed it back a little bit, I would have had a lot more opportunity to have the sorts of experiences that I was desperately chasing around. That's one of the great conundrums of life. At least as a man, I I can't say to what extent this applies to women, at least in the sort of dating, sexual, erotic arena. But I mean, one of the great changes in my life was it actually happened when I was going through a very painful breakup with a woman that I really loved and had been with for five or six years. And we um, never stopped loving each other. We just, she wanted kids and a different kind of life. And I didn't want kids and, you know, I wanted to travel. She wanted to have a you know, ski weekends and, you know, her idea of a good life was just different from mine. And it took us a few years to realize that those, (laughs) neither one of us was really going to change our minds. And so we gradually and very painfully separated and, um, I was depressed. I didn't realize it at the time, but I was pretty depressed for a few years after that. And I, so because I was depressed, and I don't mean clinically in, in a sort of, in a way that required medication or anything, but certainly I felt disengaged from life in a way that I hadn't before. 
And I just didn't give a shit about a lot of things. And one of the things I didn't give a shit about was whether or not women wanted to be with me. I mean, I guess I gave enough of a shit to still chat with them at a party, but um, not. it wasn't like it had been before. I didn't have that edgy neediness. And what I found was that as soon as I no longer had that neediness, suddenly a lot more women wanted to be with me because the secret is, gentlemen, neediness is very unattractive to women. What they want to see is confidence and that you have your life pretty much You've worked out your shit. You're not broken looking for someone to fix you. Now I'm talking about certain kinds of women. I'm sure there are women who are looking for broken men that they can fix, but you know, they're on their own difficult path because I don't think anyone can fix anyone else. Ultimately at most you can offer guidance on how to fix yourself. I think that's pretty much all you can do. But as soon as I no longer had that need um, and could just lay my shit out on the table like, hey, here's who I am. Here's what my you know situation is. You want to hang? I like you. You're hot. And I'd like to know you better. If not, don't worry about it. Just that's fine, too. Once I had that attitude toward things, Wow everything shifted became a lot easier and I'm not saying everybody was into it lots of women were like oh that's who you are okay cool see you later but that's fine once you can deal with that deal with the reality that everybody isn't into you right not everybody's into you maybe five percent of the people that you interact with are going to want to know more are going to want to go deeper with you. That's a pretty good number, 5%. So you know what? You hang out, you meet people at parties, you meet people at bars, you meet people wherever you meet them, and one out of 20 wants to go deeper with you? All right, suck it up and take those 19 shots because, and take them as quickly and as gracefully as you can, and there will be fewer and fewer of them. The ratio will keep shifting in your direction. Anyway, I don't know how this turned into like dating advice for young dudes, but that's what happened. Uh, So getting back to the question, intoxicating love to me is, like the word suggests, toxic. I think all of us are better off if we can move away from this scarcity-based model of I need you, I need this, I need whatever, to a plentiful, plentitude-based model where we say, you know what? There are a lot of amazing people in the world. There are a lot of attractive people in the world. There are, and, and also attraction. Let's go deeper than surface, right? That's another thing that has become clearer and clearer to me the older I get. The surface shit, really, who gives a fuck? After a while, everybody starts to look the same. I mean, beauty is great. Beauty's wonderful. But it's overrated in our world because it's used to manipulate us. It's used to sell us trucks and beer and whatever other bullshit they're trying to sell us. And so they make it seem so important. It's not really that important. What's important is there's a line in a song I heard recently, and maybe I'll play it here. It's a Joe Henry song. He said, I don't miss you half as much as the man you made me think I was. Something like that. It's a really interesting line. And you, Because what he's talking about is that the relationship wasn't about you. The relationship was how I felt about myself in your presence. And I think a lot of people 
especially men, probably. I don't know. Maybe women. I always feel when I'm talking about these things, I always feel like I have to apologize for generalizing about women because I'm not a woman. I don't know. So ladies, please forgive me for any time I do that. But um, I think a lot of guys want to be with a really attractive woman because it makes him feel um, it increases his status relative to other men. He thinks, uh, but if you're with a woman who's attractive physically, but treats you badly or isn't really all that interesting and you know it, then the only men who are going to be impressed by that are pretty shallow men. So you're playing in a, you're playing on a certain field. You're, you're sort of transmitting in a certain frequency that's only being picked up by people who are tuned into that frequency. And that's the world that you're going to live in. And when you start transmitting on a deeper frequency, then you're going to be impressing a different kind of person. Oh, here comes a train. And then that's the world you're going to live in. Yeah, let's listen to the train. Montana. Uh, And so my point is you might feel good and you might feel like you're winning the game, but there are games above that game. And at a certain point, maybe you'll realize it's time to abandon that game and move up. Even if you move up alone, because then you're going to find someone else on that level. I don't know if, if I'm making sense or not. Um, but who does that person make you feel you are? Do they make you feel when you're in their presence, do you feel like this is the best me? Or do you feel stressed out and angry? Or do you feel like you're toning down your intelligence to speak with someone and connect with someone who can't handle you at full throttle? Are you a shallower you when you're with your partner? Or are you authentically you? I think the key to a really, you know, you're in a good situation when being with that person feels just like being alone. I think that's when you know you're there or being with that person maybe even makes you work a little harder, be a little better, pay, pay a little more attention than you would otherwise, because you want to live up to them, not in a way like they're pissing on you, but you want to be worthy of them. That's important. And none of that is about being intoxicated. It's the opposite. That's about being more alert, more focused, more in tune with yourself. Quite the opposite of intoxication. All right. I'm going to play that song by Joan, John Henry. No, Joe Henry. Joe Henry. Uh, I don't know what it's called, but I'm going to find it, and I'm going to find that lyric, and I'm going to play it. I'm going to insert it right here. I'm not coming down 
trampoline by joe henry and the lyric is but i don't miss you half as much as who you made me think i was when i could see myself the way you do i could almost see myself in you yeah i'll play daniel shortly we'll get back to daniel i forgot that i had already promised you a song this is the problem with patching these things together i don't remember what the fuck i said a month ago I don't remember what I said two minutes ago. Um, Yeah, there's something I wanted to talk about. What was it? I made a list here. Oh, yeah. I was thinking this thing about mansplaining. I I heard somebody use that phrase again the other day, and manspreading. And um, the thing about manspreading is, for those of you who don't know what it is, manspreading is the complaint lodged primarily, I think, exclusively by women, that men take up too much space on the subway or the bus because they spread their legs, whereas women sit with their legs together, thereby taking up less space. The thing about that is that 
men have balls. I don't know how many of you have noticed that. And balls generally are placed between the legs. So I think it's kind of unfair to blame men for having their legs open when they're sitting on a hard subway seat. Uh, now that may seem ridiculous or it may seem metaphorical to you, but I think there's something similar in the complaint about mansplaining, which is men tending to explain things to people um, in a way that's potentially perceived as condescending. Now, I have no doubt that a lot of men do that. And I have no doubt that women are sick of being spoken down to, as anyone is and should be. Um, but I also think that a lot of these cases of so-called mansplaining may be misunderstood. And what I mean by that is that men habitually help each other and, and sort of our instinct is to offer information. So if you have a, you know, a couple of guys, your car breaks down, guy pulls over, what's going on? Well, I don't know. It won't start. Well, could it be the alternator? Well, maybe I got it changed two weeks ago. Well, let's see. You know, maybe it could be this. It could be that. That's just the way men interact with each other, offering information, comparing notes. You know, I know a guy who can fix that. I know a way you can get that for a better price. I know a different way to do that. Let me help you out. That's a form of generosity uh, among men. And so I think a lot of cases of so-called mansplaining are actually just men trying to be generous to women. Again, I'm not denying that there's a lot of bullshit and a lot of talking down and a lot of, oh, you're a little lady, you don't know how to do anything. But I, I do think that a lot of what gets condemned as mansplaining could better be understood just as men trying to be generous in their way, which isn't the same way that women are generous, typically. Women will be more um, supportive in the sense of listening to the problem. So if a woman pulls over and your car doesn't start, you may say, oh, my car's not running. And she might say, wow, that must that must suck. And, you know, that <laughs> must feel bad. <laughs> I'm joking, of course, a little bit. But uh, I do think there's something to think about here in the way that men and women uh, express themselves and offer help. There's a book I read years ago called You Just Don't Understand by a linguist. I think her name is Deborah Tannen. Uh, and she talks about these differing communication styles. Uh, that men and women have. I think there was a another thing about how we tend to sit differently. Like men sit side by side, looking out at something and having a conversation, whereas women will sit across the table from each other and look at each other. With men, that could be uncomfortable, feel confrontational. Men like to be doing something together while they talk. Hence, you know, fishing, hunting, building things, whatever. Uh, that's a more sort of comfortable situation for men, whereas women can just, you know, sit down and have some tea or something and have a conversation without necessarily needing to be doing something. There's some good insights in that book. Um, anyway, those are my thoughts on mansplaining and so on. Okay, let's look at an email I received a while back from Alfio. And it says, I have what might be considered a petty question or an irritation in semantics, but as you're a writer, I thought you may have something to say. What sort of gravity do you think words have in our world when they become hateful or aggressive? Do you agree with the statement that words are violence in a specific context? Um, I feel as if in this incredibly sensitive world, we use words like trauma or assault uh, or throw around the term Nazi etc. so poorly that a lot of terms are becoming meaningless. And I guess it begs the question of if meaning is important, isn't everything just made up and all that? That's an interesting question. And it's something I've thought about a lot in terms of the differences between English and uh, some European languages that have sort of a central authority 
that determines what words mean and how they should be used, how they can be used. English sort of runs along behind, uh, the authority runs along behind the usage. And um, if words are used enough in a certain way, that becomes their meaning. Um, You know, I get annoyed, for example, that the word disinterested has become synonymous with uninterested. Whereas if you look up the word in the dictionary, disinterested means without an interest in something in the sense of, I have no interest in the outcome of this court case, therefore I'm a good judge, right? It means objective, or at least it used to. But now so many people are misusing the word that it's become, that its meaning has changed um, through mistake, basically. And that's happened in, in many cases. There are many words who the meaning of which has changed or the power of which has changed um, through usage. It's almost as if it gets used so much that the corners get rounded out. Um, I may have mentioned on this podcast before, like when I was a kid, if you said something sucks or someone sucks, oh, you know, my math teacher sucks. Everyone understood that that meant your math teacher sucks cock, which, you know, you were just leaving off the word cock, but that's what you meant. And so it was totally unacceptable. You would never say that in front of your parents or teachers or any sort of authority figure. You, you, you know, you'd be in the principal's office in no time. Now I see it on TV all the time on these, oh, that sucks. This sucks, whatever. Um, It's become vernacular. It's become common. And I think a lot of people use the phrase without even thinking what it means, Um, as I do. Everybody uses phrases without understanding the original meaning. That's one of the things that's so much fun about reading Shakespeare. If you read Hamlet or King Lear or Macbeth or whatever, you'll come across dozens of expressions. And you'll be like, what? That's where that came from? Oh, holy shit. Maybe even the expression holy shit comes from Shakespeare. I don't know. But um, it's it's a pretty amazing thing. If you've never read uh, a Shakespearean play, it's it's amazing to go through and just be like, wow, I had no idea all this stuff came from here. Um, anyway, so to get back to your question, I kind of feel like I don't. I don't, I try not to be invested in like planting a flag in a word and insisting that this is what it means and this is how strong it is. And, um, there are lots of different ways to use words. And I think that the context is really everything. And, um, you know, I've used words on this podcast that you should, a white person should never use, right? I've used all sorts of racist terms and I try to use them in a context where I'm making a point that isn't racist, where I'm making a point about language, but somebody might hear that and say, he used that word. He said it out loud. Therefore he's a racist. Um, I don't know. The other day I saw a, a, a shop in a shop uh, in a mall something about oriental rugs. And I was like, wow, oriental. I thought oriental was forbidden. I thought that was on the list of words nobody should say anymore. Then I posted it on uh, Instagram and a bunch of people were like, well, you can say oriental rugs. You just can't say oriental people. And it's like, well, why, how, who decides these things? See, this is the problem with not having a central authority. You get sort of gang rule, mob rule. What, Okay, it's insulting to say that person is Oriental. What does Oriental mean? It means they come or their ancestors came from the Orient, right? The Orient is the East. How is that insulting? Someone's from the East. Someone's from the West. You know, I I don't, I honestly don't get it. Now, someone could say, well, but the context, the historical context is that, you know, they're slights that use the word orient in the slight okay but you know there are slights that use all sorts of different words we it seems a losing battle to run around 
telling everyone they can't use words that have been misused in the past because every fucking word has been misused in the past. Um, you know, if, if somebody used a hammer to kill somebody, we don't run around telling carpenters they can't use hammers anymore. That doesn't make any sense. Um, and I think this is a, a problem that we have repeatedly. So <clears throat> hewing back to the question, I don't feel that there's anything wrong with using a word like trauma, for example, um, to talk about an emotional shock. Um, now, I know a trauma doctor doesn't treat emotions, right? That's not what a traumatologist does, but um, there are many different types of trauma. Nazi. Yeah, Nazi is a specific party uh, and a specific uh, refers to that party in the 30s, probably, although there were there are still Nazis all around the world now and probably refers to Germans in most cases, although, you know, uh, Franco was a Nazi um, in Spain. There were Nazis in Italy, as, as everyone knows. So words can be um, very sort of blunt instruments sometimes. And, um, and, and they're shifting and mercurial. Um, there's an interesting word, mercurial because people used to play with mercury. Children would play with it and it would slip through their fingers and take different forms and uh, merge and, and come apart. And, uh, and I'm sure it also has a reference to the planet Mercury and to, uh, you know, various mythological figures and so on and so forth. So, no, I don't think that we should be restrictive with words. I don't think we should try to be purists with words. One of the great beauties of the English language is how words change and shift um, in, in almost like crystal and different lighting um, and different contexts and, and with different intentions uh, in, in coming from the mouths of different people. And uh, I think that's what one of the great things about the English language. I used to talk about that in my classes when I taught English in Spain all the time, how words in Spanish are much more pinned down and um, sort of less ambiguous. They're, they're much more defined in Spanish. Um, and so we end up with certainly the greatest body of poetry that I'm aware of in any language. You know, maybe Chinese would argue with me, but uh, I think at least arguably English is the greatest literary language uh, on the planet. And the reason is because of all this changeability, because we have so much vocabulary that's come in from French, from Spanish, from Latin, from uh, German, uh, even from Swedish, I think the word fuck comes from uh, a Norwegian language, uh, originally meaning to hit. Um, so many different, uh, because of all the colonization, it's kind of like people in Spain are so beautiful. Why are they so beautiful in Spain? Well, because the Romans were there, the Arabs were there, there's all these waves of immigration. So you get this beautiful mixture and joining of different blood and tradition and um, architecture and all this beauty that overlays these layers of um, of richness in the Spanish culture and food and architecture and in the people themselves. Uh, and similarly, in the English language, we have so much foreign influence. And, um, and, you know, someone like Shakespeare can come around and lay out a bunch of phrases that stay for, for not just generations, for centuries. Um, and I wouldn't want to restrict that kind of malleability at all. One of the examples of this I used to use in my Spanish classes was a scene from the movie Blue Velvet, <clears throat> a David Lynch film. If you haven't seen it, it's mind-blowingly strange. Dennis Hopper is in it. He plays some sort of hoodlum who ha I think it's an oxygen tank or maybe it's a nitrous oxide tank, but he's always walking around with this big gas tank and he's got a, a thing he puts over his mouth and he takes breathes in the gas but there's a scene where <clears throat> he comes out of a closet or something and he says to this other character he says fuck you you fucking fuck 
I used to use this when I was like teaching executives at Nissan just to blow their minds a little bit. I was like, you know, and for example, here we have fuck you, you fucking fuck. Here the word fuck is used as a verb, fuck you, as an adjective, fucking, you fucking fuck, and as a noun, fuck, the object. The, uh, object. You can't do that in Spanish. And that's one of the reasons that you can have such amazing poetry and lyrics in English. Because you can say something like, fuck you, you fucking fuck. Uh, thank you for listening to this. I've been talking <clears throat> roughly for an hour between here and a month ago. I'm going to uh, close this out. That was just my phone that beeped, not yours. Ignore it. I'm going to close this out, as promised, with the song Daniel by Elton John, lyrics by his good buddy, lifelong buddy, Bernie Taupin. I haven't seen the biopic yet. But I'm looking forward to it. I've been watching Deadwood for like the fourth time. I think I mentioned this last episode. Man, if you like Westerns and you like speaking of language, um, there's a lot of swearing, but it's historically accurate and it's uh, creative. Let's put it that way. Um, it's a fucking great show. All right. Daniel by Elton John. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'm going to throw up another episode tomorrow probably a normal interview episode hope you enjoyed this no sponsors no bullshit just music and talk just a bonus episode for you thanks bye mm-hmm.